turn to the very last page of the book of First Corinthians. We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth for the last uh, nine months, if you can believe it. And uh, we have finally come to the end of this, uh, this letter. In this chapter, uh, Paul gathers up a lot of bits and, and pieces, fragments, things that uh, he has on his heart that he wants to say. He addresses some of the questions that had been raised by the Corinthians in their letter. You'll notice again in this chapter that uh, formula phrase, now concerning, or now about this, which we've seen uh, frequently in the book of Corinthians, which is his direct response to some question which they have uh, raised. Uh, Carolyn likes to keep uh, bowls of uh, dried flower petals and spices and, and leaves uh, around the house sometime, and she uh, will run her fingers through those uh, leaves and awaken the aroma and the fragrance will flow all through the, through the house. And I thought of that as I read through these verses. This is a potpourri. It's an assorted collection of, of ideas and thoughts, which as we run our minds through it, are inclined to uh, evoke uh, memories and aromas and fragrances of, of our Lord. It's easy for us to read through a passage like this and and think, well, this is a very unremarkable part of, of Scripture. There's not much here to, uh, to speak to the heart. But if you really think about what's in this chapter, there's much here to address the needs of our, of our hearts. The uh, ideas, though they seem to be scattered, uh, revolve around uh, three topics. Giving, planning, and loving. Uh, Paul begins with this uh, notion of of giving, verse 1. Now about the collection for God's people. Do as I directed the Galatian church to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go along also, they will accompany me. The, uh, the people in Jerusalem were uh, often strapped for money, it seems. The uh, Roman Empire had stripped their country of natural resources, and the people there were, were poverty-stricken in general. And one of Paul's concerns, wherever he went from church to church, was to raise funds for the saints back in Jerusalem. As he points out here, he did so when he went through Galatia, uh, the churches there are the churches that we know from the book of Revelation, churches in Laodicea and Sardis and Thyatira and Ephesus, where he was staying when he wrote this, uh, this book, Colossae and other cities in the region that we call Turkey today. And then when he went through Macedonia and he contacted the churches there, he appealed to them as well to send money to the church uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, as he puts it, as I directed the Galatian churches to do, uh, so now I, uh, I ask you uh, to give. One of the things that struck me as I read through this passage this past week is its context. It's directly related to chapter 15, in which our Lord, uh, uh, in which Paul deals with uh, the whole 
concept of death and and a resurrection and the assurance that someday God is going to set everything right. In verse 51, Paul says, Listen, I I tell you a, a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash at the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And uh, the sound of that trumpet has, uh, uh, has just ceased to reverberate when, when Paul says, Now will the ushers please come forward and we'll take the, uh, take the offering. And there's something very striking about that. I, I thought of Jesus' words, As you have freely received, freely give. We give not because we should or we must or we have to or we ought to. But we give out of a response to God's love and his goodness and his grace. If God has, uh, has healed your marriage, if God is helping you to, to deal with the guilt in your past, if he's, he's helping you in practical ways to deal with your addictions and compulsions, then give out of a sense of thanksgiving and gratitude to him. But if he hasn't done anything for you, he doesn't want you to give. But, uh, of course, he has. He's been so gracious, and our hearts want to respond. And that's why Paul appealed to these uh, people to provide for these needy saints over in, over in Jerusalem. Now, there are four or five principles that I see here in, in these short verses. The first is that uh, everybody ought to give. Paul says, each one of you should set aside a portion of money. Giving is not just for the affluent. It's for all of us. Uh, you'll recall the Lord's commendation of the, of the woman who brought her mite. I, I meant to bring one in here this morning, and I, and I forgot. I actually have a, a, a Roman coin that was called uh, the mite. It's just a little tiny thing like this worth, worth a fraction of a cent in our, uh, in our economy, in our money system. That's all she had. But uh, she came, and she gave that uh, small portion, and she was highly commended for uh, for that gift. So Paul says this is something that all of us can can participate in when when God touches your heart and there's a need there someone to whom you can can make a gift then uh, then do so. Uh, secondly Paul uh, says we should they should set aside a sum of money. In other words in other words giving ought to be uh, thoughtful and methodical not, we should not give simply because uh, our emotions are touched. We need to stop and think through our giving program. It needs to be a part of our budget. It needs to be uh, something that we as a family determine together that we will do on a regular basis. In Paul's day, uh, workers were paid at the end of the day. They didn't have to wait until the 1st and the, and the 15th as as we do, they receive their, their daily wages each day. And uh, what Paul is, is encouraging is that they take some thought about their giving uh, practices and they take some of that money every day that they're given and, and set that aside. That would be a part of, 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 their, of their budget, a regular, uh, uh, a regular way of, of giving. The third principle here is that it is in keeping... With one's income, Paul says. In other words, it ought to be proportionate. The New Testament knows nothing of a, of a tithe, of giving 10%. Uh, that's Old Testament giving. And as a matter of fact, if, you're, if you look carefully at the, at the giving practices in the Old Testament, it far exceeded 10%. But in the New Testament, there's no percentage that's uh, specified. 
that's why I get a little tenth when people start talking about uh, a tithe. Uh, It's simply not spelled out anywhere in Scripture how much much we should give. The principle is, as God has prospered you, give. If God has, uh, has, has given you, has given graciously to you, and that's an opportunity for you to share uh, out of his largesse. And then uh, finally, Paul says, I want this to be done so there will be no collections when I come. In other words, our giving ought to be unpressured. We give not because someone demands it, because we're compelled to do so, but because we, uh, we want to. Uh, I have a friend who told me that when he was a young man growing up, the elders of his church used to come to their uh, farm uh, in the spring, and uh, they would uh, they would pick out certain calves. They would say, "We want this one, and we want that one, and and we want this one." And his family was compelled to to sell those calves and or give the calves to the to the church. Now Paul says that's not the way it should be done. Uh, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, com- uh, no one should be compelling you to give, as God touches your heart, and as you see the needs, and as you respond to God's grace, you should give. Now, there's one other word that Paul addresses here to those uh, that are on the receiving end of, of these gifts. Paul says, uh, "When I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve, and I will send them with your gift to Jerusalem." And if it seems advisable to me to go also, they will accompany me. He's thinking here of a, of a responsible delivery. Uh, we need to be thoughtful in our giving and give to those uh, ministries that are, are using our funds in a responsible way. I overheard uh, Carolyn this last week talking on the telephone to someone who was raising uh, money. And her question to them was, uh, can you tell me how much of this money actually gets into the hands of the people for which it is being collected and how much goes into administrative costs? And uh, uh, I didn't hear the person on the other other end, but I I, uh, suspect that they were a little bit indefinite about that and uh, said, well, we'll get back to you later. And that was the end of that. Uh, And I thought that's that's very wise that we we who are on the receiving end, uh, end of gifts need to be very, very responsible in the way those funds are handled. And we who give need to be careful that we're giving to those uh, ministries and, and operations that are handling those funds in a responsible way. So there you have, a, in those few verses, a, a little vignette, a little picture of how we as Christians ought to give. Then Paul moves on uh, to the issue of planning, how we, we plan our days. We all have our schedules and schemes and, and plans and, and day stars or, or uh, uh, day star diaries. And what, what attitude should we have toward the plans that we make? Well, in verse 5, talk, Paul talks about his plans. After I go through Macedonia, he says, I will come to you. For I am going through Macedonia. It's not clear in the text, but Paul was very clear. He, he would be in Macedonia, he was sure. Macedonia is that portion of Greece uh, which is up to the north of the city of Corinth. Macedonia was the northern region of Greece. Achaia, Achaia was the southern region of Greece where Corinth was located. And Paul says, I will be going to northern Greece. And perhaps I will stay with you. Or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. 
I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Pentecost was when the weather broke and it was possible to, to sail across the Mediterranean. Because a great door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many who, uh, who oppose me. Now there are a couple of principles that I see here in, in Paul's uh, uh, statement of his desire to uh, uh, to visit the people in Corinth. There's a, a, a kind of a, a wonderful indefiniteness about uh, about Paul's uh, uh, promise. He gives them a definite maybe, um, and I and I think that's the way we have to approach our days. There's nothing wrong with with making plans. There's nothing wrong with having five-year schemes. We ought to be projecting ourselves out into the future. But we have to give God the right to chart our course and to change our course and to lead us into, into uh, areas of life that we never anticipated. As I've said so often, one thing about the Lord is that he is wonderfully creative. You never know what he's going to do next. And what makes life exciting is simply following the Lord and letting him, letting him plan your life, getting up every morning and saying, Lord, I, I have my schedule today, but I give you the right to alter my schedule and, and take me wherever you want me to go. I want you to get me to the right place at the right time so that I can give a, a word in season to the, to the right people. And I, will, I give you the freedom to chart my course through the day. I've been working on some material in the 23rd Psalm, and I've been meditating on uh, the Lord's words, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And uh, I've been thinking about the way ancient shepherds led their sheep. Each evening they would uh, pin them up in the sheepfold to protect them from thieves and marauders. And they would sleep across the door and around the outside of, of the fold to protect, protect the sheep. But then in the morning, each shepherd would make his way through the herds, the, the flocks of sheep, there would be several flocks in the fold, some of which were not, not his flock at all. Each shepherd would wander through the, through the flock and uh, had, a, had his own unique call, a kind of a yodel that, uh, that his sheep were, uh, were familiar with. And the sheep would awaken and they would stumble to their feet and they would follow the shepherd uh, and, and he would lead them out and, and find pasture. Well, that's a wonderful picture of the way our Lord leads us. He doesn't drive us. Ancient shepherds didn't walk behind their sheep. They didn't follow their sheep. They led them. And that's what our Lord does. His uh, eyes sweep over us every morning before we're awake, and he awakens us. He calls us by name. He knows each one of us. And he calls us to follow him. And we go out and find pasture. He doesn't give us guidance. He doesn't point the way. He is a guide. And uh, though we have our own plans and schedules and schemes, we need to hold them loosely enough so the Lord can take us wherever he wants, he wants us to be. There's something wonderfully ambiguous and something wonderfully exciting about following him. You never know what he's going to do uh, next. The other thing that, that I noticed about uh, Paul's planning is that um, he wanted to bloom right where he was planted. 
He says, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effectual work has happened to me. This is what happened in, uh, in Ephesus. Paul went there and began to preach in the synagogues, as his habit was, and when things got too hot for him there, he moved next door to the, the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, or Tyrannus was a, uh, apparently a philosopher, and uh, there was a lecture hall that had been named after him right next door to the synagogue. And for five hours a day, for six days a week, for three months, Paul taught. And amazing things were were happening. If you go back to Acts 19, Luke tells us the story there. People were being delivered from their occult practices, from uh, the grip that magic had on them. They were bringing their magic uh, paraphernalia and their books to him. And they were building huge bonfires and they were burning these uh, materials Luke estimates that the value of the books that was burned while Paul was there was over a million dollars in our in our money. And you can see that simply by teaching, Paul was changing the atmosphere of the city of, of Ephesus. That is, you know, how you begin to change a society. You change it by the proclamation of the Word of God. And that's what Paul was doing. The Spirit of God was touching the hearts and the lives of people in Corinth. And it was changing them. And uh, they were bringing all of the gear that had been a part of their, uh, of their, of their terrible past. And they were offering that up to God on a, on a great uh, funeral pyre. They were burning their past. And uh, by that means, signifying that they wanted to, uh, to follow the Lord. And uh, Paul, seeing what was happening in the city of, of Ephesus, said, I, I want to stay here. I want to stay here because God is using me. And I want to ask you if that's, if that's your, your perspective on where you go and what you do. Do you move from place to place simply to be upward mobile, to make more money, to acquire more things, to gain greater prestige? Or is it to find a place of ministry where you can be useful? I think I've mentioned before my, my friend in California who worked for Standard Oil, who was a a young genius who was on his way up, and uh, he was asked to transfer to another part of the of the country by his organization. And he wouldn't do it because he was conducting home Bible classes throughout the the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and people were were meeting Christ, and and God was using him in a great way. And so he simply refused to move. So he he got pushed off to the side and passed over, and never rose any higher in his. In his company, than than he was than he had presently uh, achieved, but it's all right. It's all right because uh, he wanted God to use him right right where he was. You see, so though Paul wanted to go to Corinth, and there were certainly advantages to his going there, he he felt that he must stay behind in Ephesus because God had opened a door there for him. And notice how he puts it. He doesn't say God has opened a door for me, but there are many. Adversaries, he says, and there are many adversaries. In other words, that's another reason to, to stay put. The simple fact that things are, are difficult, that God has put you into a marriage with a very difficult personality, or, or God has put you in a dark and, and, and difficult place uh, at work, doesn't necessarily mean that you need to move on. If, if God is using you there, you can expect opposition. Uh, that's because you're aligned with God in his purposes. 
One of the Psalms, Psalm 44, is often described by scholars as the, as the black sheep of the Psalms because it's the only one that contains no praise. In, in that Psalm, the psalmist uh, decries uh, his lot. He went out, uh, he says, to do battle, and uh, Israel's armies had gone out to do battle, and they were disastrously defeated. And, and he says, I don't understand, he said, what, what's going on? We went out in faith like Joshua and his armies went out in faith, and, and we were defeated. And then there is this, this moment of truth where the answer flashes through his, his mind. For your sake, he says, we were being killed all day long. That's the passage that Paul quotes in Romans 8. And, and the psalmist's point is that if you're going to align yourself with God, you're also often going to find yourself in very difficult, dangerous circumstances. Things may be very hard, but that doesn't mean that you need to move on. Very often all that means is that you're doing exactly what God has, has called you to do. You've been aligned with him. And that's why you're taking the shots. Those are the shots that the enemy is aiming at him. You just happen to be on his side. And that's why things are so difficult. So out of these uh, few verses, I see, uh, I see two principles. Uh, one, we need to give God the right to plan and, and choose for us. And secondly, until God moves us on, until, to use uh, Francis Schaeffer's colorful term, God extrudes us from our from our place until it's abundantly obvious that God no longer wants us where we are. We need to stay put and serve him faithfully in that dark and dangerous place. Now, uh, Paul turns to some other issues which I have put under the general uh, rubric of of loving people. He mentions a a bunch of friends over in, in Corinth, Timothy and Apollos and Stephanus and Fortunatus and Caicus and Aquila and Priscilla, who were in uh, Ephesus and and in whose home uh, the church uh, uh, met. And uh, there are a number of things that that came to me as I thought about these individuals. Paul says about Timothy, verse 10, If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he's carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Timothy was a young man. He was probably the messenger by whom Paul uh, sent this letter. And we, by reading between the lines of 2 Corinthians, we gather that he received some rough treatment from the Corinthians when they when he delivered the letter. This came later. But at this point, Paul is encouraging the, the folks over in Corinth to accept Timothy and receive him and, and encourage him because he was a young man. And we know from the books that Paul wrote to him, First and Second Timothy, that he was inclined to be a, a timid person. He wasn't naturally strong and, and aggressive. And uh, Paul wants these folks to to nurture him and love him and and encourage him because he needed that, that sort of help. And as I read these verses this past week, I thought back on my own life and the men and women that encouraged me as I was, as I was uh, growing up. A man by the name of Gordon Donaldson that picked me up as, uh, as a young college student and began to meet with me. And uh, when 
hardly anyone else could see any potential in me. He did and was willing to meet uh, with me and mentor me and give me the kind of encouragement and training and instruction and structure and, and help that I, that I needed. And I think of my young life uh, leader in, in high school, uh, Dick Langford, and uh, the very special way that he loved me and encouraged me, and, and Howard Hendricks when I got into seminary, and Ray Stedman when I went to Peninsula Bible Church, and then a dear friend, Charlie Luce, who at that time was an elder at Peninsula Bible Church that took me under his uh, wing and, and just helped me as a young man to get along. I have a, a friend that ranches over on the eastern uh, side of Washington State, and he wrote me a letter some time ago about a young pastor that they had uh, in their church, and he described the way he described him made me uh, laugh out loud. He said, I think we picked him a little green, and uh, he, he needs to mature a bit. He says, well, what they did is they sent us a do-it-yourself preacher kit, and we have to put him together. And... Uh, I thought, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's exactly the attitude that we ought to have toward young workers. Uh, most churches try to take them apart, it seems to me, rather than, than help them get, get themselves together. What a wonderful ministry for you in this congregation uh, to take some of our young staff people and, and our high school kids here in, in, in our congregation, our college uh, men and women and young single men and women, in our group and uh, begin to mentor them and encourage them and help them along. Now, that's what Paul wanted this church to do for Timothy, and Timothy became a giant in the faith as a result of Paul's confidence in him and the ministry of, of others. And then uh, in verse 12, he speaks of his brother Apollos. Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to uh, with the brothers, that is, uh, the brothers that uh, had accompanied uh, Timothy. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. And what I see here is a wonderfully gracious attitude toward Paul's competitor. Do you realize that Apollos was one of the men around whom the church in Corinth uh, had centered themselves? There were three groups in Corinth, Paul, uh, Paul's group, the Pauline uh, groupies, and there were those that gathered around Cephas, Peter, and there were those that were enamored of, Paulus, of Apollos. And uh, Paul had to rebuke the church for that tendency to idolize men and women and put them on pedestals and make of them something more than, than they were. Apollos was a, a brilliant young man from Alexandria, a young philosopher, that God was using a tremendously, a very attractive personality, the kind of person that, that, uh, that, that uh, folks are inclined to gravitate toward. And Paul knew if he sent Apollos back that it might uh, tarnish his image in some sense. He, he uh, wouldn't have the adulation and appreciation of some of the people in Corinth, but that's all right. That's okay. Because Paul wasn't really in competition with Apollos at all. He was delighted that God was able to use this uh, young man. He rejoiced in his ministry. Uh, Brian Fisher recently referred to someone uh, whom he said was always willing to give a helping hand to those that were above him. And uh, I, I thought, yeah, that's, uh, that's the way a lot of us are. We, we want to pull people down so we can get ahead. But, but here, here is one who wanted to reach down and help someone else 
uh, in their ministry and help them become successful in the ministry that God had given to them. That was Paul's attitude toward uh, Apollos. The other thing I noticed is that he did not try to control Apollos. No one has the right to control another human being. Even God has limited himself in some degree in that he will not control us. We who are in the ministry have only one authority, and that's the authority of the Word of God. Where Scripture has spoken unequivocally, we can speak unequivocally, but beyond Scripture, we have no right to control or direct anyone's, anyone's lives. have no right to tell you where to live or where to work or, or uh, what to do with your life. That's a matter between you and, and God. And while uh, Paul, as an apostle, might have felt that he could direct Apollos to go back to, to Corinth, he wanted him to go back uh, to that city. Uh, he did not try to uh, control him. The uh, other group that he mentions are the three men who brought the letter from Corinth. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Paul mentioned Stephanus in in chapter 1, verse 16, when he's talking about uh, the few that he baptized. He said, I baptized uh, none of you. Oh, yes, he said, I did baptize the house of, of Stephanus. Stephanus' household was the first. Uh, they, they were the first set of converts in Achaia, in southern Greece. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. There are several things to notice about these people. They were men who were worthy of others' respect. Paul says, acknowledge them, and as a matter of fact, submit to them. Now, that's, uh, that's very interesting because I, I ask myself, what, what power did they have? What position did they hold that made it necessary for the, the church in Corinth to submit to them? Uh, this is, a, I think, a short, short study in authority and how we gain the right to give leadership to others and in the first place, these were mature believers. Stephanus was one of the first believers in Achaia. He'd had some time to grow in the Lord. He'd amassed some information. He knew something about God that, that others had not yet come, come to know. Presumably, he had kept on growing from the moment of his, of his new birth. And so he, he had something to say to others. Again, the authority that he had was the authority of his relationship to Christ and his knowledge of, of God's word. The other authority that he had was that of a servant. He didn't try to lord it over people. He didn't demand that others respect him and, and obey him. He served them. Jesus made it very clear that, the, that leadership in the kingdom of God is not lordship. It's not bearing down on others. It's serving them. 
Our Lord himself set the example not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life for others. His symbol was a, was a towel and a wash basin, and you see him down on his hands and knees washing the feet of the disciples. Now, the question in, in the kingdom is not how many people are under me, but how many people am I under? How many people am I serving? And uh, Paul uh, thinks well of this man, Achaeus, uh, uh, Stephanatus, rather, because he says he was devoted to the service of the saints. Actually, that word devotion is the word, uh, is the Greek word that means addiction. He was hooked on servitude. He wanted to serve others wherever he went. And that's what gave him authority in the eyes of others, his maturity, his knowledge of the word, and his servant's heart. There's a line somewhere in Shakespeare where someone says, I can call up spirits from the briny deep. And the answer is, I. But the question is, when you call them, do they come? And uh, that's, that's the question. We can say, I'm the pastor of this church, or I'm an elder, or I'm the leader of this uh, group. Uh, follow me. And, and, and people say, why? Why should we follow you? Well, if you see in that person the, the marks of maturity as they begin to, to grow up in their knowledge of Christ, and, and if they're people that really serve, that want to minister to the needs of others, then those are the people we should acknowledge. Now, uh, Paul's final word here in verses 19 through 24. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. You may note in the in your margin that Paul uses uh, Priscilla's nickname, Prisca, which is apparently a, a term of endearment. This was a man and woman very close to Paul's heart. He had apparently led them to Christ. They were uh, they worked at the same trade. They were leather workers as well as uh, Paul. And at some point, he had come in contact with them. And it led them to Christ, and they'd become very useful to the church. Had opened their home in Ephesus of, as a as a gathering place. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. My, I wish we could reinstitute that uh, custom in in the church. We're so uh, standoffish. If you go. Uh, to uh, some of the churches in Europe, you will get kissed like you wouldn't believe. Kissed on one cheek, and then the other cheek, and then the other cheek. Three three kisses and a big hug on top of everything. And and it just uh, has a wonderful feel to it, to know that, that someone uh, really cares for us and loves us that much. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. And at this point, Paul took the pen out of his scribe's hand and he began to scrawl the words that, uh, that follow on the page. Paul was going blind, as, as, as uh, we think. And uh, he says in Galatians, you see with what large handwriting I have written. Paul apparently had to, to write uh, very large so that he himself could see. And, and these following uh, words have a very special personal touch to them because Paul himself didn't dictate them. He, he wrote them. Uh, if you're ever traveling throughout Turkey and uh, you go into an antiquity shop and you happen to find an ancient manuscript that has a different handwriting on the bottom, please hang on to it. it you may have something that's really worthwhile. <laughs> Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, 
A curse be on him. Come, O Lord. My, does that sound harsh. It sounds like Paul is saying, all right, all of you non-Christians out there, you're cursed. But I want to assure you that's not what Paul is saying. It's unfortunate, really, that uh, that the verse is translated this way. Paul is not talking about uh, the average uh, uh, run-of-the-mill non-Christian, the person outside of Christ who doesn't yet grasp the gospel. He's really referring to those that were within the church that were just playing the game. He uses a word for love, the, uh, the unusual word for love, that means affection, phileo. Our word Philadelphia, brotherly affection, comes from it. He's talking about those that were within the church that had a lot of religion but didn't have any reality, like the Pharisees of, of Jesus' time. Paul would never say that those outside of Christ right across the board are cursed. He's talking about those that know the truth and have turned their backs on it, those that were accusing Paul of falsehood, those that were saying he was not a true apostle, those that were stirring up trouble in the church through their, through their unbelief. Furthermore, the word that he uses is not, is not the word for cursing. He actually breaks into a foreign language at this point, but he's not speaking in tongues. He breaks into, Arama- into Aramaic, which was the language of commerce among the Jews in that day. He says, to those that, are, that have no affection for our Lord Jesus, anathema maranatha. There's a nice ring to it. And I think it probably was a, a kind of a... a, a catchphrase that was used in Christian circles, anathema, maranatha. Anathema actually meant, in the parlance of that day, handing someone over to the gods. It was used in in secular Greek literature of handing someone over to the gods or something over to the gods for their disposal. It was used when they brought gifts to the temple, the pagan temples. They, They anathematized their gift. They handed it over to the gods for their disposal. And then it came to be used in New Testament terms of handing people over to God for his judgment, doing for them or to them whatever was necessary to bring them to repentance, perhaps. It's, it was, it, what Paul is simply saying is, I'm not going to take vengeance on those that have opposed me. I am simply handing them over to the Lord to let him dispose of them in his own way, in his own time, Maranatha is another, actually it's, uh, it's three Aramaic words all clumped up together. Our Lord is coming. It means maras, the word for Lord, nas, the word for our, tha means uh, to come. It can have the idea of a, of, a, uh, uh, of a command, our Lord come in that sense. But more likely, he's saying, our Lord is coming. Those that have opposed me. I'm going to put them in God's hands. He, he will, he'll take care of them in his own time and in his own way when he comes. And then this wonderful word, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus, on top of that statement about those that do not, do not have affection for our Lord. And the all includes even those that, that hated him, those that were trying to undermine his ministry, those that were his enemies in every sense of the word. He says, I send my love. To all of you. Now I want to go back to one verse. It's verse 13. And I want to leave this, this word with you before we gather around the Lord's table. Verse 13. This is a wonderful summary of the Christian faith. 
Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. The first thing Paul would say to us if he had the opportunity to address us is to be careful. Be careful out there. Your your enemy is is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he, he can devour. He's trying to destroy marriages. He's trying to ruin fine young men and women. Get them in various ways to trash their lives through drugs and through alcohol and, and through sex. Be careful out there. He's a great deceiver, and his deceit comes at us from every direction. It comes at us from Playboy magazine and from Reader's Digest and from National Geographic, from the liberal press, from the conservative press, from every side. He can even, he can even speak with the voice of angels and pastors. Be careful out there. Don't be deceived. Secondly, he says, be, be faithful. Um, stand firm in the faith. What does he mean? Well, be true to the truth. The faith, there is the body of truth that's delivered to us by the, by the apostles. So get familiar with it. Know what the faith is. Begin to invest some time in, in getting to know God uh, through his word. One of the Bigelow papers says you have to get up early if you want to take in God. Uh, I don't think that, that we need to understand that in some mechanical, legalistic way. It's not those who get up at 4 o'clock in the morning who have an edge on everyone else. What he's saying is take in God before you take in anything else. Before you read the newspaper, before you go out into the world to, to face the deceit and the lies with which uh, we have to struggle every day. Be a man or a woman of the word. Be true to the truth. Third. Be men of courage. Now, I know Paul is not being politically correct here and saying be men of courage. Actually, he, uh, he, he strengthened it. It's much stronger. It's be a man. Be a man. He would say that to women as, as well. Be a human being. And it's interesting. He, he doesn't tell us what it means to, to be a man because we know. We know. No one has to tell us. Uh, we, C.S. Lewis once pointed out that, you know, you, you, there's no need to clap an alligator on the back and say, be an alligator. An alligator knows what, what it means to be an alligator. And uh, the same thing is true of, of us as men and women. We know, we know that men and women are, are just, they're kind, they're thoughtful, they, they're courageous. They, they, they don't give way to cowardice. They don't use people. They don't live for things. We know. We know. So Paul says again, not, not only be true to the truth in the sense that you know the word, but begin to let the word make its way out into your life so that you are day by day becoming everything that you know you ought to be. Fourthly, Paul says, be strong is the way the text puts it here. But actually, it's, it, it's in the passive voice in the Greek language. Be made strong. And here Paul uh, uh, diverges from the normal greeting. and In letters of that day, at, at the bottom of, of each letter, you'd almost always find a Greek term, eroso, at the bottom. Be strong. Be tough. Be macho. 
But Paul doesn't say that. He says, be made strong. Blessed is the man or woman who goes from strength to strength. Well, what is it that makes us strong? It's not some inner resource that we pull together. It's, It's God himself who is in us, who strengthens us. And then finally, Paul says, be loving. Be loving. Be careful. Be faithful. Be a man. Be made strong. And be loving. That's the mark of a disciple is one who, who loves. It's not that they're highly intelligent. It's not that they're very knowledgeable. It's not that they're uh, faithful attenders at Sunday school. It's not that they carry a very large Bible. It's that they love people. By this, Jesus said, shall you know, shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Now, there are a lot of scattered thoughts, and I leave that to you to sort through that potpourri and find the principles and and the truths that speak to your heart. 